Let's pray together. God, we thank you uh, so much for uh, this opportunity to, um, Lord, gather today. Lord, our neediness of you is ever before you, ever before us as well, God. Our dependency upon you, um, Lord, is something that we feel, Lord, as we um, dive into this new uh, sermon series over the next couple of weeks. God, we lament and we um, are heartbroken as we look uh, around us in our culture at the gender confusion, at the uh, sexual brokenness, or we are um, filled with just a weightiness as we uh, begin to talk about this topic. And so, God, would you help us, Lord, over the next couple of weeks, and especially this morning, would you give us uh, clarity and vision from your word about what you have to say about gender roles, about what it means to be a man and a woman. Lord, I pray uh, for myself today, God, that you'd help me to be clear and yet gracious as we begin this topic. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Hope that you guys are, are doing well uh, today. Um, if you're new uh, with us at College Park Fishers or you've been coming uh, to our church for just the last couple of weeks or a couple of months, uh, you need to know that the uh, normal preaching diet here at our church uh, is going through books of the Bible. I believe in expositional preaching. Um, not that topical preaching is, is sinful by any means, um, but we just believe that preaching through books of the Bible is the most uh, effective way to expose ourselves to the whole counsel of God. So I uh, view kind of expositional preaching going through books of the Bible like a long road trip, uh, where if we're riding together, uh, I want us to see and experience as much as possible the landscape of God's glory. And admittedly, uh, going through books of the Bible, some are longer road trips than others. Um, but as we travel together, whoever's in this pulpit preaching through books of the Bible is trying to point out uh, the, the mountain of God's glory over here or the water flow of God's grace here or the beauty of Jesus right, right here as we travel through books of the Bible being led by the Spirit of God. Now, if you've ever been on a long road trip before, uh, you know that inevitably you have to make stops along the way, especially if you have kids. Uh, as you're kind of making your way through that road trip, maybe you get hungry, you want to stop and, and get something to eat. Maybe you're low on gasoline, you get some gas, or uh, maybe there's some dirty diapers, or the kids are misbehaving. And so from time to time, you have to make stops along the way. And the reason why you make stops along the way is because you need to address something that is keeping you and whoever you're traveling with uh, from, from traveling in a way that's most enjoyable. That if you don't address that issue, uh, you're not going to enjoy the road trip as much as you possibly can. You know, if you don't change that diaper, it's going to be miserable for the next eight hours in the car. And, and so as that relates to us and, and preaching in this metaphor uh, from time to time, we do believe it is necessary and important to, um, to kind of pull off to the side of the road, whatever book that we're in, and to address a topic that is most needed and would be most um, helpful. And so over the next four weeks, the topic that we are um, kind of taking a pit stop for is the topic of biblical manhood and womanhood, that we're calling this uh, short sermon series, A Beautiful Design, because we believe that God's intent for creating man and woman is beautiful, that it's for our good and it's for our flourishment. 
So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to try to apply what we believe God has said in his word about manhood and womanhood. We're going to try to apply that to, uh, to singleness. We're going to try to apply that to marriage and what it means in the life of our church. Now, you might be wondering why this topic and why this topic now? Okay, why are we taking you know, a break from our road trip uh, as we travel through John? Well, here are three reasons um, why we're taking a break, just so you know kind of the why behind this series um, as we move forward. Here's reason number one is that there is a, a growing rejection in the world as it relates to biblical manhood and womanhood. This won't surprise you, but uh, over the last few decades, our culture has entered a post-Christian a pluralistic, postmodern phase in its approach to gender roles. Uh, as a result, I think that there is a, a gender fluidity that has become kind of the default mindset as it relates to gender roles. I'll give you one example of that. If you go on Facebook and you're trying to, to create your profile, it's going to ask you to, uh, it's going to ask you for what gender that you are. And Facebook now recognizes over 70 different options for your gender, over 70. And so when we look at our culture, the world that we live in, for, I think for many people, sexuality and gender roles, gender identity is so convoluted because of this growing rejection of what the Bible actually says. And you probably have experienced this in your own life in different ways, but it's almost taboo today to speak about manhood and womanhood in any fixed way. I think the reason for that is because our culture believes in the rights of gender interchangeability, that you have the right to kind of choose whoever you want to be. You have a right to love whoever you want to love. You have a, a right to experiment with whoever strikes your fancy. And what's underneath that, that logic and that ideology is the belief that you are only happy you are only alive, you are only liberated, you are only truly human when you follow your natural desires and your natural impulses. In fact, if you suppress anything uh, from within, then you're not truly human. So I think we can agree, especially on this topic, as we see kind of the cultural landscape, our culture is adrift. Our culture, when it comes to this topic, is like a rudderless vessel in the sea without a compass, without a map, and really without a clue of where this whole gender fluidity is, is headed. That when you look at the implications of a gender fluid, gender neutral, gender dysphoria, the, the implications are devastating on a culture. And look, on one hand, like, we really shouldn't be that surprised. Like, like we shouldn't expect non-Christians to to act like Christians, to, to hold to uh, the Bible. But one thing that has been startling is how fast we have uh, arrived as a culture. And this leads to the second reason why we're addressing this sermon series, is I think because of the culture that we live in, uh, there is kind of trickling into the church this imbalanced application of manhood and womanhood as it relates to marriage and singleness. That what tends to happen in the culture, does trickle into the church from time to time. And so as a result, um, there is this brewing cloud of perplexity that is starting to settle in to the hearts and minds of those within the church. Let me give you a couple of examples. When we think about gender roles in the Bible, 
that there is this kind of growing confusion of how we apply gender roles to these different arenas of our lives. That from time to time we look at a passage in Scripture about gender roles, and now all of a sudden there's this confusion of how we apply this to marriage or singleness. We look at different texts and we think, is this a timeless principle for all people in all places, or is this a cultural principle for just the people of the Bible in this particular time period? Like, why are we okay with women not being preachers or not being pastors, but head coverings, we don't care about that? Like, who gets to pick and choose what's timeless and what's cultural? Or what is the role of a husband and what is the role of a wife? And, and are they interchangeable? Can a husband do exactly what the wife does and, and vice versa? Who, who gets to pick and choose what that actually looks like? Or what is the connection between your gender and your role and your responsibility in a particular community? There's all kinds of questions that uh, have now uh, surfaced even within the life of the church, but there hasn't always been this type of confusion. And I think because of this, there's this imbalanced application of this topic in these particular arenas. And I see this imbalance in two different extremes. That one extreme, there's this um, underdeveloped application as it relates to marriage and with singles, where for many, we're not really sure how biblical manhood and womanhood should impact what it means to be a godly man, a godly woman, a godly husband, or a godly wife. That if, and, and for some, this is a big if, if we think a man and a woman are different, then for many, they're unsure of what those differences actually are. Like, are those differences biblical, or are they just cultural differences? For example, if uh, your child came up to you and uh, asked you the question, Daddy, what makes you a daddy and mommy a mommy? And if you're trying to answer that question, you know, you're not, you're not really going to point to different body parts. You've got a young child. How would you answer that question biblically? Not just culturally, but biblically. Or if you're grabbing coffee with a friend and your friend looks at you across the table and asks you the question, what is your manhood for? Or what is your womanhood for? Would you know how to answer that question biblically and with the specificity that the Bible talks about? I think in addition to this, with the underdevelopment, singles, unfortunately, the, the unintentional message within the subculture of Christianity is that unless you're married, unless you have kids, you don't really have true value. Like you can't really have a role in the church unless you're married or if you have kids. So this topic, I think, applies to singles as well. So if the underdevelopment is one extreme, I think the other extreme in this imbalance is, uh, is to go to the other side of the spectrum, where there tends to be an overemphasis of what it means to be a, a biblical man and a biblical woman taken to an extreme outside the bounds of Scripture. And what I mean by that is we might understand what the Bible says about a man and a woman, but it's taken to such a, an extreme that it's unhealthy and at times even sinful, that this can lead men to acting like chauvinistic and even abusive uh, towards other women in the name of manhood. That this can lead to even women who are suppressing their God-given gifts, their God-given strengths, because their mindset of what it means to be a woman is to stay in the kitchen, iron clothes, 
and you can only serve in children's ministry. Now, those, those things are, are awesome and, and amazing, but, but because of this extreme position of manhood and womanhood, there's this imbalanced application of what we see in our everyday life. And so we need this topic to have a much more balanced approach of what the Bible has to say. Thirdly, the last reason that I want to take a break from John and look at this uh, topic is just a reminder that God's beautiful design is actually for our flourishment. Like God's intent for manhood and womanhood is actually for our good. Like this isn't restrictive uh, for us. And and yet a, a gender kind of neutral world I think wants to convince us that manhood and womanhood aren't important. Or or that if you have a distinction between men and women, that that's too restrictive, that's too harmful, that's too detrimental for humanity to flourish. And that's that's really the argument. And and it's so ironic that the LGBTQ community holds to um, much of their beliefs in, in really the name of flourishment. That they are rejecting Orthodox Christianity because in their minds they're trying to help humanity uh, flourish. That they're looking at biblical Christianity of what manhood and womanhood is all about. And they're saying, you're on the wrong side of history. You're too restrictive for humanity to flourish. And and look, I just want to be bold and say that that cannot be the case. Like you cannot have these two different paths that contradict each other and say both are for the flourishment of humanity. I think God's beautiful design and the way that he's made us, he's made us for his good pleasure. He's very specific with, with gender and with men and women and the roles that he's given us. It's not by accident. It's, this topic is not boring. It's not of little importance. And it's not to suck the joy out of our lives. Like God did not create Adam and Eve And he didn't take a step back, and he's interacting with the angels, and he's thinking, okay, I've made humanity. Now, how can I make them absolutely miserable, right? Like, how can I keep them from flourishing? I've got an idea. I'm going to make them different. I'm going to make them distinct, and let's see how they become so miserable with their lives. That's not what God did in this beautiful design of men and women, that he's created us equal but with different roles for our flourishment. And so before we dive in, I just want you to know that this sermon series is not going to be a sermon series about uh, statistics or about abstract principles. What I want to do is to unfold the beauty of God's creative order in order for us to savor God's beautiful design for gender roles. That no matter if you're married, no matter if you're single, no matter if you have kids or not, when you understand this topic biblically, this will lead you to a better approach to what it means to be a godly man, woman, husband, or wife. Will this sermon series automatically fix your marriage? Probably not. Like, will this sermon series lead you to having the type of contentment and satisfaction while being single that you're looking for? Like, maybe. But what I want to show us over the next couple of weeks is, like, here's the path for flourishment. Here's the path for satisfaction and and for joy. Let's get on it together and and go down this path that that the Lord promises is for our good and for our flourishment. 
And so I'm excited to, to dive into this for, for numerous reasons, but even as we think about our relationship with the world, like we have something better to offer the world when it comes to gender roles. Like we have a, a different vision for human flourishment when it comes to manhood and womanhood. And what the watching world desperately needs to see are believers who believe in the authority of God's word to live out biblical manhood and womanhood in such a degree that they're watching us flourish, they're watching us have joy and satisfaction in the hopes that they're wooed into what the Bible actually says. Like if, if we're kind of going toe-to-toe with culture about gender roles and we're having different conversations with them and you're talking to your neighbors about this, and yet your marriage is miserable, or as a single, you have no joy in, in the Lord, how are they going to be wooed into what the Bible actually says about manhood and womanhood? And so we need to think about this category as really the, the vehicle for more joy in our lives as the world watches and sees what we actually believe. And so let's dive in. We're going to jump right into Genesis chapter 1, and we are going to look at the blueprint uh, for flourishment. Now, you might be wondering, why in the world are you starting in Genesis 1? Like, you might be thinking, man, Chris, this topic is already too old-fashioned. This topic is already too far removed from even the New Testament. Why are you going all the way to the Old Testament, even more so all the way to the first book of the Bible, all the way to the first chapter of the Bible? Well, the reason for that is because the blueprint for flourishment is right here in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That God, the master designer, the creator of the universe, sets forth his purpose for why he has created men and women. And if we believe in the authority of the scriptures, let's see what he has to say from the very beginning. Now, in addition, I think everything in the New Testament about gender roles grounds itself in the creative order of Genesis 1 and 2. When you look at what Paul says in five different accounts in the New Testament, he quotes from Genesis 1 uh, or Genesis 2. Jesus quotes uh, from it in Matthew 19. And so Genesis 1 and 2 is really the authoritative text and passages when you talk about gender identity and gender roles. And what we know about Genesis 1 broadly is that this is the story of the creation account. We all know that. This is from the very beginning. This is God creating the universe, culminating in the apex of creating man. He creates men and women in his image. Now, when you look at these couple of verses in chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, there is so much in here. And yet one of the most, I think, important aspects of this passage is to understand that God is explicitly stating his purpose for why he created men and women. Now, when you take a step back and you look at all that God has done so far in Genesis chapter 1, from day 1 to now day 6, what God is trying to do is he is trying to display his glory and his worth in the most effective way possible. Okay, that, that's the purpose of all that he's been doing from day one to day six. And so he gets to day six and he begins to create man. And by creating man, this is really the apex of his purpose of displaying his worth and his glory throughout the whole universe. And the way that he does that is he creates man and women, male and female, in his image after his likeness. 
Now, the reason he did that is not because God was bored. God was not trying to show off for the angels. He's not trying to, you know, get the attention of the elephants and say, look, I'm going to create something you've never seen before. What God is trying to do is he's trying to create these living images that bear his worth and his authority that will maximize the glory of his name. Now, theologians call this Imago Dei. And what this means to be created in God's image is, as the great theologian John Frame has said, to image something or someone is to resemble and represent the one that it pictures. Okay, so the way that we are structured, our, our, our body parts, the biology of who we are, and the function, like the specific roles, depending on our gender, is how we best image God. And so to resemble God means that we've actually been created like God. Like there are all kinds of profound ways that we are so unlike God, but there are many ways that we are like him, and that's in order to image him. To represent God is to take the authority he has given us and to use it for the purpose of his will. In fact, during the time that Genesis was written, this ancient Near East time, there were kings and different rulers who would use their own image, they would use their own likeness in order to represent their authority and their presence throughout the kingdom. That's what uh, kind of a coin does. On a coin, you have a kind of a, a, the, the likeness or the image of that ruler or that king, and that is to represent their authority and their presence. And so what God has done with humanity is he has stamped on us his own image and his own likeness in order for us to represent his rule and his authority. Now, as we talk about the image of God, this literally could be a whole sermon series in and of itself. When you take a step back and you understand the weightiness of this, that we've been created after the likeness of God, the implications of this as it relates to men and women are vast. Like this is a huge, huge task for us to understand what it means to be created in the image of God and what that means practically for us on a day-in and day-out basis. Like I'm sure as God's creating Adam and, and eventually Eve here, like the angels are looking at this and I'm sure their, their jaws are just hitting the, the floor. If there's a floor up in heaven, it's probably hitting the floor wondering like what in the world is God doing? Like why is God creating male and female? after his likeness and in his image? And it's a really important question. This is going to uh, lay the foundation for uh, our sermon series, and then we're going to be more specific over the next couple of weeks. So let me just lay the foundation here as we apply the image of God, Imago Dei, to our male and female identities. And there's three things I want to point out here. Here's number one. Is that because we have been created in the image of God, Male and female have God-given dignity. God-given dignity. And because we are like God in various ways created in his image, every person has worth and value and dignity that is immeasurable. Every boy, every girl, every unborn fetus, every ethnicity and nationality, every male and female has unquestionable and equal worth and value across the board. Like when you are looking at a person, you are seeing a little picture of God himself, however, however insufficient that might be. 
And I think this God-given dignity means that men and women, we have a, a type of intrinsic value that is different than the rest of creation, including animals. Now, we are created very differently than animals. We have been created with the ability to relate with God. We have mental and spiritual faculties where we can pursue the things uh, of God. We're different than animals. Matt Chandler, who's a, a pastor in, uh, in Dallas, Texas, uses this really funny illustration. He talks about how uh, in his house he has a wife, he has got a couple of kids, and then he has a dog and, and a horse. He lives in Texas. And he says, now let's just say that in, in, during the life of our family and as we're doing life, we, we run out of money. Okay, we're getting short on cash, and we're just kind of bleeding through all kinds of cash. And the question is put on the table of who goes first? Like, who do we need to get rid of? He, he would say, you know, most people would probably say the dog or the horse goes first, right? I think we can all agree in this room that that's probably what should happen, even though, and this is his words, that his wife is probably costing the most money out of anybody multiplied by five, but he says, he's like, look, this is not a mathematical question. This is not who's costing us the most. Let's get rid of that person. And he says, it's not even an obedience question. It's not who would make my life easiest or hardest. Let's get rid of that person. Because if that were the case, we're going to keep the dog and get rid of the five-year-old. So it's not a matter of, of mathematics. It's not a matter of obedience. We, we know the answer is clear. It's the, it's the dog or the horse. And the reason why we know that to be true it's because men and women have been created with a God-given dignity that, that is different than the rest of creation, not because of what you do or how you perform, but it's who you actually are. Like you have the image of God imprinted on the DNA of your soul. That's why every person is created with this type of dignity and worth. And so this separates us not only from creation, but this point also should inform how men and women interact with each other and how they view one another. That both men and women have equal dignity, equal value, equal worth. That just because Adam was created first does not make him superior to Eve. It's not that men have more value than women. And so this should inform us men how we view women and how we interact with the women that are in our lives. That we should not walk around our, our houses, our homes, as dictators. That we shouldn't walk around as if we are superior, that, that we are better than the women who are in our lives. We'll get to this in Genesis chapter 2 next week, but as Eve is called the helper, the helper in Hebrew does not mean inferior. It does not mean slave. And so for us to think about this God-given dignity, this should inform how we relate and how we view one another. There is mutual respect because there is equal worth. And parents, you can even apply this to how you parent as well. You know, when you're looking at your kids and, you know, and, and obviously no one has perfect kids, they can be, you know, frustrating at times, but they are never an inconvenience. They're always a gift of God. They are little image bearers of the Almighty God. And look, this is a challenge for me, you know, as we're sitting eating dinner and it takes them like 93 minutes for them to eat two pieces of broccoli. And I'm thinking, this is cutting into Chris time right now, right? Because we could have been done eating dinner, go do bedtime, and now I get to enjoy the rest of my evening. 
But when I view my kids, these are little image bearers of God with dignity and worth and value. You know what that does to, to the selfish Chris Beals? That puts me in the right perspective and it increases my patience with them. It reminds me that this is a person, this is a living display of God in some measure. And that also increases a sense of urgency within me. I'm thinking, man, this is a little image bearer of God. I need to disciple this little image bearer. This, this person has a soul, and I need to be a good steward of all that that means. And so we have a, a God-given dignity. Secondly, another way that we can apply the image of God to our male and female identities is um, because we've been created in the image of God, we have God-specific gender distinctions God-specific gender distinctions. There are differences between men and women, not only in structure, not only in body parts, but also in our function or in our roles. That's why verse 27, he created male and female, he created them. And yet, we know this to be true, our culture is trying to erase that. Al Mohler, who's president of uh, Southern Seminary, um, gives a really helpful summary of where our culture is in relation to this topic. This is kind of lengthy, but it's really good. He says this, the most basic question in this controversy comes down to this. Has God created human beings as male and female with a revealed intention for how we are to relate to each other? The secular world is now deeply committed to confusion on these matters, denying the creator the secular worldview understands gender to be nothing more than the accidental byproduct of blind evolutionary process. Therefore, gender is reducible to nothing more than biology, and as the feminist famously argued, biology is not destiny. This radical rebellion against a divinely designed pattern of gender has now reached the outer limits of imagination that if gender is nothing more than a biological accident, and if human beings are therefore not morally bound to take gender as meaningful, then the radical gender theorists and homosexual rights advocates are correct after all. For if gender is merely incidental to our basic humanity, then we must be free to make whatever adjustments, alterations, or transformations in gender relationships any generation might desire or demand. It's a really helpful summary of, of how our culture is seeing things and, and kind of where our culture is headed as it relates to gender distinctions and, and also gender identity. And yeah, I just want you to point out what the text says. It sounds so basic and yet it's so profound. Look at verse 27 with me. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Look, who is the one who is creating in this text? It's God. God is the one who is forming. God is the one who is making. God is the one who is creating, who is setting forth the purpose and the intent of men and women. It's not as if God creates Adam and says, hey, Adam, um, I know I created you as a man, but I've overheard your conversation with the elephants, and I heard that you want to be a woman. You want to be something different than what I've created you to be. I've watched you, you know, look at your reflection in the water with, with confusement. And so look, clearly I've made a mistake. I want you to choose 
what kind of gender for you to have. I, I want you to kind of dictate the, the role that you want to have in this world. That, that's not what happened. It wasn't God created Adam and Steve. It's Adam and Eve here for a specific purpose. And for us, we don't have the right to choose. Look, this is, and I want to be, I want to be compassionate when I say this, but I also want to be clear. This is why the transgender decision uh, of when a male wants to be a female and a female or a female wants to be a male is sinful. That it is putting, I think, yourself in the position of the creator and it is rejecting your place as the creation. It's saying, I don't care how the creator has made, has made me, I get to choose. And yet from this text, we see that God has created male and female intentionally and specifically. He didn't mess up. He didn't make a mistake when he made us. Look, the reason this is so important to go back to the image of God here is that from God's perspective, in his infinite wisdom, creating men and women distinct but equal is the best way to put on display his glory. We're going to unpack that in coming weeks, but there's something about these distinctions and the specific gender of each person that, that has a weight to the way that we resemble and the way that we represent him. And something tragic happens when we try to erase those distinctions. You can even tell in this text that the way that he creates these distinctions, male and female, is actually grounded within the Trinity itself. This isn't, this isn't something that's culturally true. This is something that is, that is found in how the Trinity operates. As you notice in verse, uh, uh, in verse 26 when it says, God says, let us... Make man in our image after our likeness. Who's the us there? The us is the Trinity. That you have the, the plurality of the Trinity issues a plurality within humanity, male and female. In other words, when you think about the Trinity, I think Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are equal. We all agree with that. Equal worth. And yet, they have distinct, different roles as, as they play themselves out. The Father doesn't do all that the Spirit does. The Spirit doesn't do all the things that the Son does. They're distinct and yet equal value. And so the one God expresses himself in these three persons, so humanity lives out the image of God in distinct genders, but with equal value. And more on that uh, in coming weeks. Thirdly here, last thing I want to point out from the image of God is because we have been created in the image of God, male and female have God-appointed duty. God-appointed duty. We have dignity, distinction, and now duty. If you look at verse 28, you see the cultural mandate here that we have a job to do. We have a purpose set forth by God that ultimately this is to glorify God. Well, this is the way that we do it. And there are two aspects that we see. First, we are to be fruitful and multiply, in order to fill the earth. So what God wants us to do is to reproduce more, uh, more little image bears to fill the earth so that he receives more glory. And then secondly, we are to subdue the earth by exercising the dominion and authority he has given us over the rest of creation. Let me point out in, in this verse, in verse 28, he uses the word them. This is plural, that God blessed them. 
God said to them, meaning male and female, this tells us that this duty, this purpose, this responsibility is a joint function. You can't procreate with just men or just female. You can't subdue the earth with just male or just female. This is something that men and women come together with their unique gifts and strengths, the way that they've been hardwired, and they come together and they complement each other as we pursue this cultural mandate. Now, I've said a lot uh, so far this morning. Again, just trying to, to lay a foundation for this sermon series as we think about biblical manhood and womanhood. Let me, let me just close our time this morning with three uh, practical implications uh, uh, for these couple of verses. Here's number one. Brokenness thrives when we reject God's beautiful design. That sin abounds when we take God the creator, male and female as the creation, and we flip the roles. Or we take the purpose he's given us and we exchange it for a different purpose for why we live our lives. Let me show you what I mean. Take Genesis 1.26 for a moment. Let's just play a game here. Let's, let's change up a few words here in Genesis 1.26. Let's say that this verse says, God said, let man make us in his image after his likeness. That sounds silly, doesn't it? But, but look, we do this in different ways. Like we have a temptation to take aspects of God and say, yeah, I don't love that about you. Like your seriousness towards sin, let's soften that up a little bit, right? Or, or, or this command over here, I don't love that. Let, let's change it. Let's make you, make you more comfortable to follow. And we can become so tempted to recreate God in our own image, after our own likeness, in order to have a God who's got some scripture and yet some other aspects that make it easier uh, to live with. And when we do that, that will lead us down the path of brokenness and sin. So there's a vertical way that we do this, but also a horizontal way. Let's play another game. Look at verse 27. Let's change some words around. Let's say it says, so man created female in his own image. In the image of man, he created female. Or take it the other way. Say, so female created male in her own image. In the image of female, she created male. Again, this sounds silly, but we do this one as well all the time. If you're married, you know you do this. Like you look at your spouse, you look at the, the sins, the weaknesses, the flaws, and you're thinking, man, I'm so sick of this. Like I, I want to change. I want to fix my, my spouse. And not in the image of Christ, but in the image that I desire, in the likeness after me. Like this issue here is making it inconvenient for me to be married to this person. And so we have a tendency to become so obsessed with fixing our spouse. Again, not in the image of Jesus, but in the image that makes it more comfortable for us to live with. Instead of praying for them, encouraging them, loving them, serving them, we say, no, I'm going to change you and manipulate you into my own image. Look, singles, you, you fall into this trap as well. Just to uh, warn you that you can recreate your own image, not in the image of God, but in the image of culture around you. That you can find your identity in what you produce in your relationship, relationship status instead of taking the words of Psalm 139 where it says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. If you're single here, look, you do not need someone else to complete you. Do not need kids 
to find purpose in this life. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made. That imprinted on your soul is the DNA or is the image of God. And so we don't need to find our worth in other things. And brokenness abounds when we reject God's beautiful design. Secondly, the second implication of this is that the church must be a safe place for gender confusion. Look, if the church must be anything as it relates to this topic, it must be a safe place for the gender confused and the sexually broken. Look, if, if we're not a safe place for that, then we don't truly believe our own message. Look, we're all broken. We are all in need of grace. We are all in need uh, of salvation. So how can we take one issue and say, no, no, that's outside the bounds of grace. If we do that, that proves that we don't really understand the message of Jesus in the gospel. Look, if you're honest, you can relate to similar experiences of being profoundly confused, maybe not in gender, but in other ways. I know I can. I know I've gone through seasons of my life where I've been confused about how I receive God's love, how I receive God's approval, that, that I've at times thought that it's because of my performance or because of my morality instead of Jesus, right? So we can fall into this type of confusion, just like those who are confused as it relates to gender. And so our posture towards the gender confused and the sexually broken is to come, that they're welcomed here, that they'll be loved not as a problem to be fixed, but as a person to be loved. And that as they come and they're welcomed and that they're loved well, that with all grace and with all sincerity, we will point them to the way of clarity as it relates to gender so they don't remain confused, just as I would do to someone who's a chronic liar or someone who's hooked on pornography. You're welcomed here. This is a safe place, but we will point you the way to freedom because there's grace for that. So just to encourage you, if you know people, I'm sure you do, as your kids are interacting with other kids, we want to love everybody, but also be clear about what the Bible says and what the path to freedom actually is. And then thirdly, I'll close with this here, is that image bearing exposes our need for Jesus. Oh man, this is so true. If you've tried it all to live out this image of God in your practical life, you realize that you can't do this on your own. You realize that you fail, I fail, and our need for Jesus is exposed. Look, I'm so thankful for Jesus you know, I think about this image bearing and photocopying came to my mind that when you photocopy something, you take kind of a, a copy a, a, of one image and you make a copy of that. And, and you can only do that when that copy is without error, when you have a perfect image, right? If you make a copy of a damaged copy, you're going to have a damaged image. You need to go back to the original or you need to find a perfect copy. Now, here's the good news about Jesus is that when you put your faith in Jesus and you turn from your sins and you become a Christian, what God does in your life is he recreates you in the image of Jesus Christ, his son, who is the perfect image, the perfect copy of God Almighty. Colossians 1.15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Look, in your failure, in your brokenness, 
in your sin, whether it's related to gender identity, whether it's related to, to sexuality or your role as a man or woman, husband or wife, what Jesus says to you is to come, there's grace for that. Come, there is forgiveness for that. Come and rest in me, hide yourself in me because I'm the perfect image. I'm everything that you're supposed to be. And by depending upon me, you might grow in being an image bearer of God that better reflects his glory. That is what we are after. And we can't do that apart from Jesus and Jesus alone. So let's pray together. God, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, as we think about this topic and just the culture that we live in, God, we need your wisdom. God, we need your vision of what this looks like and how this is played out in our everyday lives. God, I pray that as we interact with people in this culture that you would give us, Lord, the ability to be gracious and yet clear. God, I pray that as we think about how to apply this in our own lives, Lord, that you would challenge us, that you would exhort us, that you would, Lord, reveal inconsistencies in our own lives. God, we want, we want to be good image bearers of you. We want you to receive glory because of how we live, and we need you to do that. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.